Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I am your host. This week I'm joined by Sharath Jivan. Sharath is the second person to return to the podcast. He was on last year during the summer where he put me in the hot seat. That was episode five. If you haven't listened to it, definitely recommend it. And this time around, Sharath is here to talk about his upcoming book, Intrinsic, a manifesto to reignite our inner drive. This conversation was so very needed. He shares through his research on inner drive, motivation, how so many of us have been left in this languishing state, as Adam Grant described in his article, and many of us feel like we're treading water. And in his words, the risk with treading water for too long is that we risk drowning. So how can we move from treading water to really flourishing? How can we move to being deeply engaged in all areas of our lives? Sharath shares his concepts of purpose, how what we do helps others, on autonomy, how our ability to positively change things and mastery, our capacity to continuously get better. Sharath shares groundbreaking research as well as stories, which was a really engaging conversation. Definitely, definitely recommend and get the book. Thank you. Take care and enjoy. Hi, Sharath. Welcome to The Connected Generation. I'm really excited to have you today. Ditto, Nikki. It was so nice to connect and talk again after a few months. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a year. <laughs> yeah, time, time has flown, my God, actually. Time has flown. Mad. It's been no. a year. Wow. I was thinking that as well. I was like, oh, it was just three, four months ago. Mm-hmm. And then I looked, and I was like, no, it's actually been a whole year since our last podcast episode. So it's cool to have you back on the platform, but this time you're in the hot seat. (laughs) (laughs) I think I managed to get myself out of it last time and interview you. It's fascinating (laughs) to hear about your story and journey. So I managed to duck that. So a year, it's a good good way to duck for a year at least. Exactly. And now it's time for me to return the favor and ask you about your journey. And today you're a leading expert on inner drive, intrinsic motivation. How did you get her? Yeah, so it really came, it was a very tangled story, Nikki. I'm not a psychologist by training. I'm an economist. It all came from practically setting up an NGO that worked in India, in East Africa, and in Indonesia, called STIR Education. I set it up about 10 years ago. But very quickly realized was we were trying to do all kinds of things, but the core issue in education seemed to be about motivation. You know, the government in India had built a million schools, and yet not much was happening from that, all that you know, amazing investment in time, because teachers didn't feel motivated in their classrooms. And of course, if teachers aren't motivated, how can children be? We realized that no one wanted to touch this issue because it was somewhat politically charged. It was also very fuzzy. What oh. were the tools to even try and do it? And I spent 10 years, probably the hardest years of my life, trying to figure out how to do this. And very proud of, it wasn't perfect, but very proud of what we got to. When I handed over the organization last year, we reached 200,000 teachers, about 35,000 schools, about 7 million children. And there wasn't much to really guide me. There was a lot of research. Dan Pink had written a really good book called Drive, which summarized some of that research as well on motivation. But how do you practically apply this in our lives, right? And it was almost a blank slate. And it was a real tough, grueling journey trying to figure this out in real life at a fairly large scale. 
And so that just made me think, God, there's a real chance to help other people who are struggling with these same issues, mm. grappling with them to think about this in not just in education, but much more broadly in the world of work, which we all have to do in the world of careers and success, in our relationships, our parenting, and our lives as citizens as well. And so I created a lab where I, where I advise and consult to a number of organizations from the economist groups, the London School of Economics, around issues around motivation, but also have a book coming out on the topic, which I hope was a much broader way of reaching people to share some of these insights and learning. So it's been a real journey for sure. Oh, this is amazing. And when you talk about inner drive, motivation, what's the scope? What do you mean? Are you talking about ambition and entrepreneurial pursuits? Are you talking about personally? Can you just elaborate? Yeah, so, so I think one of the really interesting things about the book, and actually it was a very tough book to write, is it takes all those three lenses, Nikki, as you kind of alluded to, that our lives as individuals, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a worker, I'm a citizen, I, I, I've got to deal with all those realities. I also run an organization, so how do I apply motivation to that? But I'm also part of a broader society and world and country, and how do I operate to help contribute to solving some of those, what I call in the book, wicked issues out there as well? So mm -hmm. you can apply to all three lenses. My work straddles all three, and I think what, what I'm finding is that they all need to connect. Obviously, if we do one thing as individuals in our home, for example, but do something else you know, in our company, it's, it's not going to work. If we're, a, we're stepping into your world for a little bit, running a family firm, and what I say mm. and do is not role modeling what I really want my children to do, that's not going to work motivationally either. So mm. what it tries to do is weave these things together and really create a canvas for us to think about how to apply this and shift our mindsets in, in all those three areas. Powerful, powerful. I love the kind of congruence across different spheres of people's lives. And I can't remember who said this, but how you do one thing is really typically how you do everything. So we're not just like compartmentalized beings, we're fully holistic, congruent beings. So this is really powerful. I get what just came to my mind is for those that are lacking this inner drive, what are the barometers, what are the indicators for them to know that, you know what, well, actually, I don't have motivation. Because sometimes we just kind of drift through life and we might not really realize that we're just drifting and we're not really on fire and sparked. How do we know that we're in that place where we need to actually find motivation? Yeah. So I think the ray of sunshine and hope, if you like, is that I think we can all find motivation. That's the core theme of the book. We're not, it's not something we're born with. You know, I would talk to a mm. teacher in Uganda and she'd say, look, these are the five motivated kids in the classroom. She'd put them, of course, at the front of the class and then devote all the energy to them. So to kind of add insult to injury, that's not what we're talking about. We can all find it. That's the really positive upshot from the book. But the core is, yeah, as you said, exactly recognizing when we are grappling and struggling. And honestly, maybe 18 months ago, I would have given you some examples of types of situations where there could have come, you know, could have become an issue. I would say right now, post-pandemic, I'd say 70, maybe as much as 80% of us are in this boat right now. I've certainly struggled honestly, individually mm -hmm. with many of these questions over this period. I think what's happened is we have been doing the equivalent of treading water motivation, where mm -hmm. luckily most of us have had most of our friends and family safe and away at least from death or injury. Thank God and thank God to our health systems for the role I played in that regard. But I'd say a lot of us are in this languishing state, as Adam Grant has called it, where it's that sense of sort of blah, right? Where we're sort of 
yes, we are getting by. Yes, we've Netflix has saved us and so has takeout. Maybe <laughs> many of us are lucky to keep, you know, we've generally had a job. We've been mm. very, very lucky in the broader picture, right? Compared to previous epidemics, our, our world has seen. But I think there's a real danger if you tread water too long, you'll eventually drown. Mm. I think a lot of people are at that point where they've almost burnt down their motivational stocks and capital to such a point that it's almost an empty engine. We've mm. got to get that back. And what the book talks about is how we can build back better for that and think about these key areas of our lives and, and find ways to genuinely reignite it, not just languish or, or tread water. I saw that article by Adam Grant and I was like, oh my God, yes. This is literally what I felt for the last few months. And it's just so apt. And I love what you said that motivation isn't like something that you're gifted with or you're born with. It's something that we can all find. And I love what you said about in this state of languishing, it's like we're treading water. That analogy is so powerful because if you tread water so much, you'll get exhausted and you won't be able to keep up and you will eventually drown. So how can we move away from, I mean, still stuck on this metaphor, treading water to actually swimming or floating? How can we find motivation? Yeah, so I think the first thing is to realize is that what we think motivates us doesn't really motivate us. Well, let me be a bit more exact. Mm. So what deeply motivates us is not the opposite of what demotivates us. And by that, what I mean is that, you know, if you think of, let's take a family firm as an example, given this is your neck of the, the woods. You know, if I'm the founder of a successful family firm in Nigeria or somewhere else in Africa, mm. and I've made it the hard way, right? I've built this thing from scratch. I've put blood, sweat, tears. I've sacrificed countless things for my families for doing all this. And then I see my daughter or son who's meant to be taking over the business. And all the things that motivated me, the sense of status as an entrepreneur, money, of course, the external sense of being you know, in Lagos or Abuja, wherever, being in the right circles, you know, all mm. what we would call these extrinsic or external motivators, they mean nothing to my children. And mm. the easy thing to say is, God, my kids are layabouts. And I talked about in the book that there's a well-worn Arab saying that says that a, the son of a duck is a floater. Hmm. Yeah, so the son of a duck is a floater, which means basically, you know, we do everything for them. A lot of that is not because young people are, well, the next generation are demotivated. It's because we don't understand what deeply motivates them. And so I think it's such a, a ripe issue. And I think a lot of the family conflicts we're seeing with succession and issues around performance of family firms, all these things stem from that basic, or that lack of that core insight. Right now, I'm the son of immigrant parents myself. I understand this dynamic uh, very, hmm. very personally as well. But does that, does that resonate? Oh my God. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sure all the listeners as well, like, thank you for validating me. Because there's very much this sentiment that successes have it easy, successes are entitled, successes are lazy, they're spoiled. But like you said, it's coming from a place of not understanding the plight of the successor, the shadow of the success of the founder on the successor that can have implications for the success of finding his or her identity, her motivation, like he said. So that definitely resonates. You mentioned that you kind of made a corollary parallel to your experience as a son of immigrant parents. Can you share more about your journey? Yeah, so I was born in India, in the south of India. I came to the UK when I was about three years old. And my parents are doctors. And for them, that was their, their ticket to 
really integrating into a new country, to finding a secure and well-paid job, to be part of society there. They got this their education for sure. And I think for the first probably 20 years of my life, I felt compelled to go and jump through hoops that I think ultimately were, were in some way trying to please them. I didn't become a doctor. That itself was a big thing. But I did, you know, I went to Cambridge. I studied economics. I did all the conventional things. I went joined a top tier management consulting firm. I know we share a professional services background early in our careers. At one level, I want to do those things, but I also felt there was a big area of validation that I needed. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot in these environments and I deeply enjoyed them at one level, but they weren't, certainly the work side of it, it wasn't what I really wanted to do. And I think I had a different passion. It took me another 10 years working to really jump out of that shadow and take the risk that I really wanted to do and create things that had a, a large social impact on the world and so on. So I think when I look back at that narrative, what's really interesting, my parents would always talk about medicine being a safe and secure profession. Right? And you would do, mm. you would become a doctor because you would never be out of a job. Uh-huh. What's ironic though, if you trace their, their story, they're actually, you know, they took substantial risks. They left India to a completely new country. You know, had to establish an entirely new social circle when they came here. They then went to Saudi Arabia, where we grew up for quite a while because they wanted to. Really? So they were risk takers, right? And they really were adventurers in many regards. But somehow that narrative been written, they've taken the risks. And I think they wanted their kids or they hmm. almost, I don't mean this consciously, but I think a lot of the immigrants too. They almost feel like I've taken the risks for you. I've made yeah. the world, it's all right and ready for you. Just go ahead and live it now and just put your head down. And unfortunately, what we learn about motivation, that doesn't deeply motivate us. If that's already been set up for us in that way, that doesn't give us the room for us to find our own personal motivation in life. And I think a lot about motivation now like a long Indian car journey, right? Where you think about purpose being the destination we put in the GPS, mm-hmm. that sense of us helping and serving others, autonomy, us being at the wheel and in control of our lives, and mastery becoming that better and better driver as we navigate all kinds of interesting terrain in India. So, you know, these ideas of purpose, autonomy, and mastery, those are the core pillars that really deeply motivate us. But with often we sort of set up our lives in a way that gets in the way of that. And I think that the immigrant conundrum is at the core of that, the challenges sometimes. Gosh, I also was child of immigrants as well, because I moved to the UK. So a lot of what you're saying really resonates. And now I'm on the other side. I'm now the parent that's moved to the US with two kids. And you know what? <laughs> when you were reframing and rehashing like your parents' kind of psychological perspective, in spite of the fact that they've taken a lot of risk, there's still some kind of aversion to risk for their kids. I can totally relate to that. For parents that are like me and are raising kids, how best can we raise our children so we enable them to find themselves? We enable them to find their inner drive, their intrinsic motivation. Yeah, great question. I think one of the chapters in the book is all about parenting. It was, for me, the most fun chapter, right? I'm the son of a 10-year-old and a seven-year-old boy. And I think one of the things that inspired me to write the book was that I wanted to build a better world for my children. You know, they're in perhaps the most economically prosperous time in our development as humans. Mm-hmm. And yet so many young people are sleepwalking through life. And that's the core mm-hmm. challenge right now. And it's that irony, I think, again, I think we just assumed, okay, just wealth alone, security, all these things everything will be fine. And, you know, Francis Fukuyama wrote that book, The End of History, and he thought democracy and capitalism together would mean we don't have to worry about history anymore. We're all sorted. That, that sadly was not the case. I think what's happening with young people is that 
we're not really giving them the chance to create that sense of purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Let me take a couple of examples of that. On autonomy, I think the helicopter parenting styles we increasingly adopt nowadays, where we kind of swoop in at any sign of trouble, it really destroys any sense of agency or autonomy for children. They don't feel like their own people anymore. Also on purpose, we've created this conversation with them, which is very transactional, where basically you look at the, you're in the US, I look at the US college admission scandal from a couple of years ago. Basically the deal is often in middle-class households that get into a top university or school, get good grades, and that's all we care about. Mm. The idea that we, we want to actually nurture caring, kind human beings, that's not part of the narrative anymore, you know, really alarmingly. And on mastery, you know, we cram them with all kinds of academic stuff and AP classes in the US and all these kinds of extended things, and we shuffle them from one activity to the next, right? And what we really need to help them master, I think, though, is the opposite, which is how to master a love of learning yeah. and knowing how to learn to learn and adapt to a fast-changing world. And that's clearly been the, our experience the last 18 months. So I'm deeply worried about what we're doing as parents now. And I almost feel like all the things that our parents perhaps did to us that perhaps were not so good, not again, not with any bad intention, they just didn't know the science or the, the psychology. We're at risk of sleepwalking ourselves now, just transferring a lot of this baggage onto our kids. I think it's getting worse rather than better. Wow. And you said a lot there. A lot of us are sleepwalking through life. That's so powerful. And it's really interesting. I was thinking about this the other day. I was thinking about how as parents, we are so kind of geared up to obsess with, you know, academic achievement, particularly from immigrant families. Like you said, you've made all this sacrifice. Now, this has to pay off. <laughs> We've had to, it costs money, it costs time, it costs relationships. So it has to pay off for the next generation and generations to come. But I was saying this to a friend that I do worry whether we're majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors in terms of the obsession with academic orientation. Perhaps the best gift we can give our children is a very strong sense of identity and self-belief and curiosity, give them the skills such that in any given situation, they have the confidence to figure out the solution and know how to thrive rather than being great at just regurgitating facts and academic information. I'm not sure that's really served us very well in the last 18 months. I love what you said about how we should help kids know how to learn to learn and to adapt to a fast-changing world. That's just so, 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 so apt. And your metaphor on the Indian car journey, purpose, autonomy, and mastery, I love that. Can you unpack that a bit more? Yeah, definitely. And I think let me just build on what you said there around this idea of this sort of transactional relationship. I think you talked about the majors and minors. I really love that to myself, and I might use that shamelessly as well. Just take that to its natural conclusion, I'm increasingly worried what we're doing is not just sort of not helpful, but it's actually harmful as parents. And this is where I think this whole, you talk about confidence. I just want to unpick this a bit. I think confidence, of course, is very important, but I think we've misunderstood confidence. That's why I think replacing with motivation might be helpful. Mm. So you probably have been following some of this debate in largely US driven to begin with about follow your passion. Should kids follow their passion? You know, you've got people like Adam Grant, Scott Galloway saying that this is crazy. Look, we can't all be professional baseball players or yeah. musicians or whatever. The challenge with this stuff is it's come, we've taken motivation, confidence to be very inwardly focused. So 
basically it's all about you. And that's the message mm-hmm. we're propagating about kids. And I'm in the UK where I watch lots of adults standing around a field, basically serving kids playing cricket every Sunday. And it's crazy. I think, my God, why can't they play themselves? There could be one adult there for just to keep sure everyone's safe and there's health and safety and so on. But do we need these armies of parents that could go off and enjoy their Sunday mornings and hear how the game, the match has gone afterwards? But on that point, I think what is much better to do rather than follow your passion, I believe now, have you written the book, is read to follow your problems. And what I found with the book follow is... Follow your problems, problems, not your passion. Oh. Yeah. What I mean is that what I found as a core ingredient, people who are deeply motivated in work and in their careers, is that they find what I call a wicked problem, a problem that has no easy technical solution. And they almost lose themselves in the problem. And by doing that, you almost take out all these issues on anxiety, which is a big issue nowadays, ego, all these things. You just do what you have to do to help make up. You can never solve that problem, make a dent in that problem. So if you take my experience at Stir, you know, I'd never worked in India before. I ended up running a team of 100 people there. I'd never worked with the Indian government before. That was an interesting experience. I ended up working with three state governments in about 30,000 schools there. I'd never engaged deep. I was a good idea for, for weddings and family things, but I ended up employing lots of young people and working and nurturing them. There's so much stuff that I'd never been trained to do. And honestly, I would never have done it if I just was so committed to making a difference in that area. So I think if you can find a problem that is so big and that you feel so passionately about, how you evolve and how you solve that and treat that problem will change over time. But that's like the North Star. And I'm a big believer now more and more in us all having personal mission statements, right? We all, some companies, organizations have one, but what does it mean for us as an individual, as a person? And how do we try and attribute that and evolve over time in that direction? A wicked problem, a problem so big that you get lost in it and you don't have mental room for anxiety and fit. It really resonates. And I think perhaps that's what business founders have that the successes do not necessarily have, right? Yeah, can I just take that up? Because I think I agree with you, but I think it's often how the founder frames it to the success of its yeah. challenge, right? So yeah. sorry, maybe you're about to say this. Yeah, I've worked so hard to build this. A bit like the immigrant story as well, right? We made all this sacrifice for you. So now just sit back, just follow the prototype and you have a good life. Be happy with that. Pat yeah. on the back. And it's similar. I've worked so hard to build this business. And now you just follow this prototype. Just sit in the wheel. <laughs> Enjoy. No complaints. But there's no wicked problem. Yeah, I think maybe even if I was harsh, I'd even reframe it to say, look, basically, it works hard to build this business. Now don't screw it up, right? That's what it often... Uh-huh. Sounds like I found the success for listening. I'm doing some work with some succession issues right now. And I'm learning about this practically with some clients I have. But yeah, and I said, what happens is, you know, I don't know if you, if you play a sport, but I mean, I'm a tennis nut and it's a classic thing. You're six, four up, second set, five, two. It's amazing how many matches get lost by that person in the league. Because mm. what they start doing is say they don't play to win anymore. They play not to lose. And I think playing not to lose is the game where we're often passed on to successes in family firms. It's basically, yeah, we've done all the work. Just that what we learn about motivation though is that that's not enough. That works if you have been in survival mode, you haven't had a steady income, I'm going to put bread, food on the table, live in a decent house. Once you go past those hygiene factors that motivation thinking calls or theory calls, 
you've then got to find these higher order motivators. Mm. So if the founder said instead, look, um, give me an example of family business, just pick one. Family business, manufacturing plant in Nairobi. Cool, are they manufacturing? What's the product? They're manufacturing food snacks. Oh, okay. So if the founder said, you know, said was one way of saying, look, I've built this business, you know, the product isn't mentioned, here's the factory, it generates this many million a year, get in there and, and don't screw up. That's one, one sort of founder message, which isn't very motivating, honestly. And that's why many of the issues we see. The other way of framing is to say, look, um, I built this business that creates these snacks that helps hundreds of thousands of Kenyans to enjoy themselves. It's one of the few treats they have in the day. Mm. And it's, it's a chance for them to come together, to enjoy something affordable, but perhaps also nutritious and the most fun part of the day. Let's go to the park in Nairobi and just see some, uh, talk to some families who've enjoyed this product and how passionate they are about it. We care a lot about this issue of nutrition. That's the wicked problem. We want to do more and more to help young Kenyans be able to feed their families well in a fun and engaging way, in a nutritious way. What could we do to go deeper? We've got so far, I've been able to get this first set of products out there, but I want your imagination now what we can build further that meets mm. this really important need, but also builds a good livelihood for us, for sure. That's important. So it's just reframing it around that problem rather than reframing it around income or wealth, which is usually yeah. what founders tend to do, right? Yeah, I get it. So it's really moving away from transactional, enrolling the kids into the bigger vision and the bigger why. And I'm guessing this should really apply to other employees as well, because often we just kind of, employees are just, do your job, this is a JD, we need just a helper <laughs> to get this done, right? But there's no compelling bigger why for them. And so it just remains transactional. So you're not able to attract and retain great people in the business. Yeah, I really agree. I think that's very powerful. This element I talk in the book about this idea of nurturing and, and the idea that you know, great nurturers are leaders who help their followers or people who work for them get to places they wouldn't have got to otherwise. Mm -hmm. And there's some specific behaviors I talk about in the book, motivational behaviors that make a great nurturer. And we can all learn them. These are all learned by looking at how you know, chefs are trained and nurtured, Nobel Prize winners, athletes, entrepreneurs, corporate world, etc. All of this stuff is very learnable. But what it means is we've got to start role modeling these things. So I'd say first for a family uh -huh. to first make sure that's clear with their successor. The successor can then go to the whole team and they maybe have a generation that can do that a bit more authentically perhaps and have that conversation. But the wonderful thing about a wicked problem, take you know, that food example, we'll never solve the problem. There will always be Kenyans who yeah. sadly may not have the right nutritional ways or the right type of snacks in that example. So how do we keep wanting to build and build and helping people further? But you know that the more successful you are at that, you'll also get a good living and you'll be fine as well that way around. As you said, it's, it's the, horse and the, the horse and the cart. The first thing is that that problem of being deeply connected to it as well. Mm, powerful, powerful. I can't wait. I've ordered my book, so I'm waiting for it to arrive. I can't wait to start reading it. If anyone would like to get hold of you, Sharath, how best can they reach you? And where can we find your book? No, thanks, thanks a lot, Nikki. So, so it's now September coming out in the UK and in many other countries as well. If you look at it's called Intrinsic, so as an in intrinsic motivation. If you search for me on Amazon or your favorite book site, you should be able to find it up there as well. I read regularly on LinkedIn. 
and also on Twitter. You can find me, um, Sharath, you just search for me on, on either of those and follow or connect. I'd love to continue the conversation. What I think the book is trying to do is create the start of a conversation around this question of motivation. Mm-hmm. But we need so much more to do. And I'll be sharing more resources over time on how we can go more deeply into this area. But the first thing is just, as you said, to almost start looking at our lives in a different light and taking stock and asking yeah. us, how do we stop treading water? Powerful, powerful. Yeah, I'm really excited. This has been phenomenal. <laughs> like I was taking notes and I had so many aha moments, like, ah, that's why this was like this. And this is why I shouldn't do this with our kids or with employees. No, this has been really, really powerful. I really think this book is much needed in not just the business world, but just in our personal lives at large. No, thanks. I think one of those I was really excited to be on this podcast is, you know, in Africa is going to be the future of our world in terms of our numbers of people, for example, but also in terms of entrepreneurs and founders are going to be at the core of our economies and really the, whether or not we're able to create a decent standard of living with so many people around the continent and, and of course our world and, and as a result. So I just think if we can sort and I really admire your work and excited about your upcoming book and everything we can do with founders and leaders of our family firms and companies, it's going to have a huge difference to you know, the lives of our continent and that motivational story, if we can get that right, so many of the other things are already in place. What's not, what's missing is that, that framing, understanding what really motivates our successes and how to create that succession in a way that allows us to thrive and prosper and solve these wicked problems we talked about. Incredible, incredible. Well, thank you so much, Giraffe. It's been awesome talking to you today. Thanks, Nikki. Wow, that was just phenomenal for me, not just applicable as business owners, but also in our families and in our personal lives. There's so much wisdom and insight to take away, to apply, so we could be better. I think for me, what really hit me was Sharaf's discovery about how we all need a wicked problem in our lives. And it's very ironic, isn't it, that if we have an issue where there's no easy or obvious technical solution, we immerse ourselves, we submerge ourselves, we engage ourselves in it to find a solution. And we're likely to find and build a tribe around this common wicked problem. And that drives us and sustains our motivation. Countercultural, counter what is often said. So really, it's affirming a lot of what's said that happiness is really an inside job. And it's not really as a result of being in easy situations, having things check all the right boxes, but rather actually, as Ras discovered, actually finding a wicked problem, a bigger problem that's bigger than us can actually give us this inner drive that sustains us and energizes us. So I I guess my question to you is, what's your wicked problem? (laughs) I'm on my path to discover what mine is and on a path to really living a life that's full of ignition rather than being jaded. So take care. Thank you so much for tuning in and God bless you.